Hey everyone and welcome to the hashtag career goals podcast. I'm your host Adelaide Walsh and each week I will be interviewing incredible women on how they crafted their amazing careers in the hopes to inspire our listeners. My guest today is Anna Brightman. Anna is the co-founder of Upcircle Beauty, a sustainable skincare company based in London. Upcircle Beauty elevates leftover natural ingredients, bringing them back to life as beauty products your skin will love. Anna founded Upcircle Beauty with her brother William after noticing the huge volume of coffee waste produced in London every day. Their first product, a sustainable coffee body scrub. Since launching in April 2016, Upcircle Beauty has turned 200 tonnes of coffee grounds into award-winning skincare products and is stocked in retailers across the UK, Europe and the US with Ulta Beauty. In this interview, Anna and I discuss her career and the importance of knowing that you do not have to have all the qualifications or experience to break into a new industry and how best to utilise the skills you do have to your advantage. Without further ado, here's Anna. I hope you enjoy. So tell me about your school days and what did you want to be when you grew up? So I went to a girls' school, um, which I actually loved. I think people have very different experiences at school. It's all, all either something that is a very positive experience for you or unfortunately not so positive. Um, and of course, you know, there, there are tough times, but I look back on my school days overall very fondly. Um, however, I was definitely one of those people who didn't know throughout school and beyond really exactly what I wanted to be. I knew what I was good at and I knew what I was not so good at. And I would definitely consider myself um, more of a creative person than a kind of strict academic. But in the school that I was in, sometimes um, what was accepted or encouraged with regards to the creative sphere was uh, somewhat limited or just a lot more traditional. And that didn't necessarily fit in with with where I thought my strengths uh, lay so you know I had a, I had a big passion for makeup for example and I, I really um, was keen for a long time to consider being a makeup artist I looked into some of the best makeup schools and um, really was keen to go down that route for quite some time um, but ultimately was dissuaded uh, from that and chose to go down I guess a more traditional route which was how I came to choose my um, university uh, course as well Um, but honestly I I would say even beyond university I still wasn't 100% sure what I wanted to do and it took me until at least a year or two after to realize in a more practical sense I suppose um, what sort of avenues uh, I could go down for a career. And those were careers, I guess, that allowed me to be creative, um, but in a slightly more, uh, <laughs> I guess, corporate setting initially. Yeah. Um, and I guess it's what ultimately led, led me to starting my own business. Um, that was the, the one way that I could do it all and do it all my way in the end. 
I think a lot of people share that, you know, the kind of confusion and the unknown of what we really want to do from such a young age. And there's so much pressure on us to decide there and then. Out of curiosity, why were you dissuaded from doing that makeup route? I think, I think it was probably just not something that they had. I think that the the teachers basically at my school, you know, the average age of a teacher there was uh, maybe 45 to 60. Mm -hmm. And there's me, a 16 year old saying, oh, I want to be a makeup artist. And they they wouldn't have even had a clue what to suggest, to be honest. They would have had to have done their own research to be like, okay, well, maybe you could go here. (laughs) Um, For them, you know, who would I go to? Maybe the art department. And all they're used to is... Um, you know, fine art degrees or maybe being a graphic designer or a curator in a museum or something like that. Those are all of the avenues that were kind of put on the table. Um, and you know, they would do careers lectures and they definitely encouraged us to do what we wanted. But I did often find that that was still fairly restricted and fairly traditional. And so I think ultimately when I was that young, I was just too scared. And I think often in the creative industries, it's, it's slightly more difficult, you know, being a musician or an actor or an artist, I think your chances of being incredibly successful financially uh, are, are, are tough, you know, it's not an easy road. <laughs> um, so both from my schooling and perhaps to a degree, my, my parents as well. Um, we're always just a little bit nervous and I think that nervousness filtered through to me and I think I was just I had that insecurity I suppose that okay maybe I'm not good enough like this is just an interest um Mm -hmm. so so I I I initially obviously not now (laughs) but I initially as a teenager and in my early 20s definitely went down what I considered a safer route um always bearing in mind of course you know wanting to earn money and and wanting a a steady paycheck and I guess that security that a lot of us are looking for. Yeah and I guess at the time social media wasn't that strong then and that we couldn't see those kind of different careers and how you work in so many different different ways as a makeup artist and you had no one to really connect with or um, Mm -hmm. have full awareness of how to even get to that career. Yeah I mean I I hope that doesn't sound like too much of a cop-out but that's honestly uh, how it was for me. Yeah and you're probably like others around you all your friends are doing traditional stuff maybe and then you're caring a lot what other people think. I think it's very it's exactly how things go when you're younger I think I think what's important though is that I always maintained it as a as a, as a passion of mine and yeah. as a hobby and so now when I have finally found the path that is right for me I can still draw back on the experiences that I um, kept up and you know the practices that I developed when I was younger even if it was just on the side um, and again just even my interest in you know, sewing and painting, I think even if it's not a, a, a career or something that you're being paid for, even if it's just an interest, I think it's really important that um, you maintain those and find time to continue to develop those in your life if it's something that brings you joy. So tell me a bit about your career post-university and before um, Up Circle Beauty and what did it teach you? Sure. So I did, uh, I did history of art at uni, which again, I chose because I, I was interested in um, art and I'm mm-hmm. good at writing and, you know, essays and things like that. So I thought, okay, this is the perfect balance of interest and academia. And I really enjoyed my time there. And so for me, it really was the, the perfect um, course choice. But 
again, I came out from the end of it and I was like, right, well, what, what, what am I supposed to be? <laughs> so the first, the first year after university, I did all sorts of different jobs for relatively short periods of time. Um, and they all seemed to end up being in managerial roles. So the first one was in um, property management where it was a, a London-based property firm and I was responsible for managing all of the like maintenance guys and the painters and decorators and things like that and it was great going into it because I was 21 and here I was managing a a team of men essentially Mm. and I realized that I was quite good at it I managed to get that balance I guess between being respected and also liked which when you're that young and when you're female is well any manager I think to be honest in in any job I think that's quite important and and something that is not necessarily that easy to teach but that you get better at in time and so yeah I did a variety of jobs for about a year before landing I guess the job that changed things and for me that was um the Aldi area management grad scheme Mm -hmm. so I I uh I was applying for multiple grad schemes at the time in in retail and management roles. And I applied for this one thinking, oh gosh, well, I know how competitive it is. Uh, Wasn't sure I was going to get it. The application process was unbelievable. So rigorous, so grueling. Um, Like my final interview, the, 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 uh, what, what, who came to be my boss practically ripped up my application in front of me and said, what are you doing here? But what (laughs) I loved about it was that it, 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 showed my strengths because what I did was I I argued back (laughs) and I showed my personality and I I showed actually that you know you're in a position of authority you're telling me that I shouldn't be here but actually I'm not having it and I should be here and this is why and it turned out you know I left that final interview thinking right well I've just ruined my chances but then once I was offered the job and I, I got to know him on a more personal level he said that it was exactly that kind of fiery spirit and that not taking a no for an answer which was what made me so appropriate for that job because what that job essentially entailed was me age 22 being a manager of multiple stores each of which had between 50 and let's say 80 staff wow. and most of the store managers were again largely male um but who had children my age <laughs> and there I was going in uh, trying to you know, put new measures in place and and make positive change. And I had to be someone who they could ultimately respect and listen to. So you have to be a pretty strong person uh, who's not going to take any crap. And I think that, um, I think that that was essentially what made me appropriate for that role. And I think all of that uh, insecurity, perhaps that I had faced in my earlier teenage years, slowly dwindled away during that time, because it made me realize that despite what I might have considered to be my flaws, I was actually, uh, you know, I had, I had a lot to bring. Uh, so it was a real game changing time for me. Yeah. Amazing. It seemed like you really backed yourself as well, being kind of demanding that you be respected and I deserve this role because, because I think yeah. sometimes, you know, we have, you know, imposter syndrome or, you know, Oh, maybe we are, we aren't good enough at that age or even mm-hmm. going into any role. Absolutely. And it was a really interesting experience as well, going from always being the interviewee to then being the interviewer. And I was obviously responsible for hiring for multiple store openings. And I was doing interviews on a daily basis. And obviously now in my current role, as we grow our team, I'm also uh, interviewing 
at, at very different levels of roles. So some very entry level, some much more senior. And what I find time and time again when I'm interviewing people is that they don't sell themselves or they're mm. far too bashful or they feel awkward. It's, it's a very British characteristic, I think, to mm-hmm. um, be too humble. And I'm like, no, tell me why you're great. <laughs> Just yeah. go Believe for in it. yourself, sell it. Yes, I want to hear it. If you're brilliant at something, tell me you're brilliant at it. Um, so I think, I think that's definitely to be encouraged. Yeah, I love that. That's great. How did the idea for UpCircle Beauty come about? So I founded UpCircle alongside my brother, William, who is three years older than me and, and is the opposite of me in every single way. So he was always very good at uh, numbers and incredibly academic and um, you know quite a bookworm quite introverted he went to do economics and finance at uni and went on into a career in finance very successful working for hedge funds banks things like that Um, but he is a natural entrepreneur and to an extent like me despite being successful in his career before this, uh, felt ultimately unfulfilled being a tiny cog in a massive machine. So he was um, actively seeking inspiration, let's say. Uh, He wanted to start his own business, but wasn't sure what it would be. And the idea for us and our brand came out of complete curiosity. So uh, on his way to work, as I'm sure we've all experienced, you see hundreds and hundreds of people going into cafes, buying their morning coffee. And so he one day, just again, out of complete curiosity, asked a local coffee shop, like a small chain, independent coffee shop, nothing like a Starbucks or a Costa. Mm -hmm. Um, He asked them what they do with their coffee grounds at the end of the day and was really shocked to hear that they produce so much in each given day that they have to pay the local council to have it disposed of at landfill. So all of a sudden, you know, you've got your problem. Often when people are talking about starting a business, they talk about having a problem and then your business being the solution to that problem. So we wanted to start a business that dealt with the issue of coffee waste and alleviated uh, this, this waste, I suppose, and also this cost on cafes. Um, But he wasn't sure what to do with it. And that is where my influence came in. I said, well, you know, (laughs) given that I had wanted to be a a makeup artist as a teenager, I was interested in skincare and I knew that coffee had a whole host of fantastic skincare benefits. So I said, why don't you start, why don't we start um, creating skincare products from from recycled coffee grounds? And that was exactly what we did. Uh, Both still employed in our previous jobs Mm -hmm. we started the research into this new idea and um, it was very evident very quickly that there was a massive gap in the market I cannot claim that there are no other coffee scrubs available but there were none uh, that were being made from recycled coffee grounds so it was it was different it was innovative it was kind of a fresh perspective and we booked uh, an innovation pitch. So it's like a slightly cheaper pitch for, for real startup brands at the London Coffee Festival. Oh, we wow. took along um, a whole bunch of our own homemade DIY scrubs that we put together. We made hundreds of them that we thought would last us the full five days, but we sold out before the end of the first day. So that was the kind of turning point that gave us the confidence. It, it showed us two things really, I suppose. One, that people loved the products and wanted to use and buy them. And two, that people weren't turning their noses up to the idea of using recycled ingredients. So after that, we both quit and we went full, full speed ahead into starting our skincare brand 
so amazing so what um <laughs> yeah really impressed terrifying um, for my parents having their two oldest children uh quit their imagine. secure jobs at so the same of, time what was going through your head at that point as in obviously you're like yeah there there is definitely a market here a customer need for this but how did you kind of see see long term that this would be financially secure and uh you you could comfortably leave your jobs I think you have to be very sensible in the early days and you have to be very careful as well. And you also have to manage your expectations. I think we were careful to keep our jobs for as long as we possibly could. Um, We did as much research as we possibly could during that time. And we only quit at the point that we had set ourselves up really um, to kind of hit the ground running when we were fully going alone. Um, We saved as much as we possibly could in terms of our own money. And we, we made sacrifices as well. I think we didn't start paying ourselves for nearly two years after we launched. Mm. And uh, now we pay ourselves an incredibly um, humble amount just because we are trying to, you know, reinvest as much of our yep. uh, profits as we possibly can into the growth of our business. You know, we're still a young brand. So I think it's important to um, not make, I, I guess not put across this idea that you start a brand and from day one you're you're making thousands and thousands of pounds. I think you know it's 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 undoubtedly a really scary leap, and it takes time to build uh, a following and and to really start making profit. Uh, we also sought investment from day one to help us get our our foot out the door, which was a, a big help. Um, but it's a gradual process and I think it's important that you bear that in mind and you, you put things in place and you have to be ready to make sacrifices. So for example, um, we moved our office <laughs> into our parents' home, which we'd obviously grown up in, but we'd moved out. And so they had a few rooms that were kind of free. So we, we manage our costs as much as we possibly can. And, and we kind of look i suppose to family and friends to help us where possible in order to prioritize uh, where we can when you have such a limited budget in the early days you started the company with your brother uh, mm-hmm. william so it's clearly worked out to be super successful so what do you think is the key to starting and running a business with a sibling or a close friend i think i think i, I mean i get asked about what it's like to work with your brother a lot and it is exactly what you might expect it to be like. Mm-hmm. Uh, those first few years for us particularly were extremely challenging. And, and also I would say it was a real adjustment for us when we made our first hire because we had got used to just working so informally. It, it's, it's very positive in that you're family. So you can cut through a lot of the sort of politeness that you might need to go through if uh, the person that you're partnering with or working with is not that close to you. You know, we get things done and we make decisions very quickly. We can also rely on each other and ask more of each other than you might find reasonable with someone that's not family or a very, very close friend. But then equally, you know, there is this uh, tendency to have blow ups here and there and and to clash and um, for things to be less professional so you know sometimes the the lack of professionalism is a positive but then also it can be quite uh explosive (laughs) to be completely honest yeah and when you get used to 
you know, working in your pajamas all day and <laughs> um, being really informal. When you then bring people into your team, you have to go back, I suppose, to to what you might have been more previously used to in corporate roles, um, and and adjust and and kind of check yourself, I guess. But what works for us again as individuals is we are completely opposite, and that yeah. that's incredibly helpful. So we don't step on each other's toes that often because I think we both accept that our business wouldn't be where it is and wouldn't be as good as it is if it weren't for the other person's input. So you know he's got this huge experience and and um, you know strengths in things that I just completely don't even understand, and and the elements that I do for the brand. Um, he absolutely would would hate doing you know he he has got no interest in social media yeah <laughs> or, yeah um recording podcasts doing this podcast exactly so our, our roles are very different and that helps because we're we're not we're not stepping on each other's toes yeah it's kind of having that complementary skill set and almost like personality isn't it so you can really yeah I, I guess my advice to other people would just be to really clearly define your roles as mm. early as possible so that you both have your sense of responsibility and um you know can be individually proud of the input that you're putting in amazing you started off with a coffee scrub and now you do a whole line of skincare products Tell me about that, how you went from just a room in your parents' house to growing this brand's uh, this product selection, and also what were the main challenges you faced? So, yeah, we started out focused on the ingredient of coffee, I suppose, and that's what we made our signature range with. So that was a range of um, coffee body scrubs and coffee face scrubs as well. So we gradually over time built out the portfolio of cafes and restaurants that we were collecting from. We started with one and then we built out gradually from a kind of geographical location um, in terms of, you know, the, the ease of logistics. And so we're now partnered with around a hundred small chain and independent coffee shops. So that process took time and there were many challenges involved with that. I think when you're doing something new, something innovative, something different, there are always going to be hurdles. You know, finding manufacturers who are open to to uh, working with us was was really hard, a lot more difficult than um, it would be if we were just buying fresh coffee. Equally, we face challenges with regards to things like attaining certifications because mm-hmm. the traceability of our ingredients is a lot more complex than other brands. And so... I think, you know, refining our messaging and, and getting our point across is also something that we've had to uh, look at in much more detail with a lot more consideration than other brands. Um, you know, there's, there's so much competition in beauty and in skincare. And if you look at what's available out there, you know, hundreds upon hundreds of brands can claim to be natural, can claim to be vegan, can claim to be cruelty-free or handmade, UK-made, etc. Um, but we are completely different in that every single product that we make is made with an upcycled ingredient. Um, so we, we built our reputation for pe- being the people who are collecting coffee grounds. But then what was really exciting for us is that other businesses and individuals found out about what we were doing and were coming to us with their byproducts or, or with things that they were having to unfortunately dispose of, I suppose, okay. um, that have fantastic skincare benefits and asking us, do you think there's something that you can do with that? 
And that was this really nice kind of organic way that we started to expand into different ingredients. So the next range that we released was a range of palm oil-free soap bars that are made with upcycled chai tea spices that have already been used and brewed to make chai tea syrups. But after that process, they still smell absolutely beautiful. So we dry them out and then use them in our soaps. And that was just a completely... um, I guess, coincidental meeting between me and the founder of uh, that brand who met us at a consumer show and said, oh, do you think you can work with this? And we said, yes. And that's kind of how we've we've built it from there. Um, So we try to keep our eyes open and our ears open to what's going on and, and what's around us. Right now, we're based in a railway arch and all of the other archways are occupied by florists. And I've just noticed, you know, working among them all the time that it seems that every Tuesday, they throw away any flowers that they haven't sold in the previous week. So all of a sudden, you know, the cogs are whirring in my brain and I'm thinking, right, well, flower petals are a fantastic skincare ingredient. So that's what I'm now developing into a a future product line as well. What's the product development process? So you mentioned um, someone came to you with their chai tea. How would you kind of turn that into a product? Where do you work with someone or do you, how does that work? Yes. So I guess for us, it's, people often ask does it come repurposed ingredient first or does it come product first and I think at the minute there are so many repurposed ingredients that we want to work with and so many products that we want to make that we can pick uh, based on the skincare benefits of that individual ingredient what product would suit it best so if we were interested in making a uh body moisturizer for example we could say oh okay well um we have a source of argan shells that are a byproduct of making argan oil and argan oil is fantastic for uh, hydration so that's a perfect fit and then we build the product around that pairing and we work with the the, uh, one manufacturer who we've worked with from day one they've come every step of the journey with us through the highs and the lows and the multiple challenges and they are brilliant at um i guess just working through those challenges with us until we can find a solution and it does take longer than than it would do for other brands and we go through multiple rounds i suppose where we say to them okay this is our repurposed ingredient this is the product that we want to make from it these are the other ingredients that we're interested in adding to it uh this is our price point um can you help us that they're obviously professional formulators to make this what we want it to be for the price that we want it to be at and then we go through round after round of refining it and testing it and trying it out and giving it to friends and family until we get to a product that we absolutely love and then it and then it's packaging and then it's branding and then eventually we we are able to release the product um but i guess another thing that i would mention that we do slightly differently is that once we've released a product we try not to ever view it as finished we try to always see our products as something that can constantly evolve and can be constantly improved so a lot of our products um do change over time Uh, or, you know, an ingredient might no longer be sustainable. So for example, in the early days, we had a vanilla coffee scrub, which was gorgeous and it was popular, but then the uh, sustainability of vanilla was no longer something that we felt comfortable with. So we reformulated and and re-released it as cacao instead. And I think that that's important. Uh, I think that you have to be willing to adapt and and react and, and stay right at the forefront. And that would 
be also relevant to packaging as well you know it might come in a oh i don't know there might not be a, a a lid compatible with an aluminium tube that's not plastic but in three months time if someone comes to me with a solution for that then i have i i'm very open to um bettering my products and and improving it with whatever the latest innovation is yeah so like sustainability is really at the heart of everything you do absolutely yeah from all aspects of the product yes uh, and i think it's important to be consistent at every level as well so you know our, our whole ethos is around bringing the circular economy to the skincare industry and so we put a huge amount of effort into our formulations uh, being formulations that extend the lifestyle uh, life cycle of ingredients but then if we put them in unsustainable packaging then that's uh, you know that's that's not ideal <laughs> so we try to be consistent at every level of the business the so you mentioned the beauty the beauty industry skincare beauty is super competitive how have you managed to excel in that area and maintain or find your niche? I think um, our, our entire brand concept is something completely different and it's what's made us stand out from day one. So it's, it's got us a lot of press attention and it's got us a lot of interest from retailers as well. And I think that's why we've managed to grow our brand so quickly. So for example, when we were still in the very early stages of just making coffee scrubs. We already had uh, Urban Outfitters contact us saying, we would like to list your products. And we didn't even have branding or packaging at this point. So that was another thing that really accelerated us because we obviously wanted to say yes to that. So we knew there was that interest there and we wanted to meet that demand. And that demand has never waned. Um, it's it's completely different and i think it's really important if you're thinking of starting a business that you have got something unique to offer people often say you know what what statistics do you look at um what trends are you um assessing but often i think with statistics particularly they are based on the past and you need to be ahead of that you need mm -hmm. to be there's no point now in someone saying oh i want to start a, a, a vegan brand because that trend is almost you're too late yeah. um so i think now i look at there. others yeah exactly so now i look at other skincare brands and they're trying to release a product one product within their range that might have an upcycled ingredient but for us we that was our priority from day one and we started it before it was cool <laughs> um yeah. and so that's what has given us i suppose respect and a point of difference and something that other people want to get behind and want to support. So in terms of funding and investment, obviously super important in a startup. What is mm. your advice around funding and investments? What are kind of investors looking for? What's important to include in your pitch? Um, I think what was most important for us is that you have to realize that an awful lot of preparation goes into it. So we've gone through many avenues of seeking investment. Um, in the very early days, we got the Virgin startup loan, which was really good for getting our foot out the door and helping us to afford things like our first round of packaging. What's quite challenging with packaging is, is the minimum order quantities are really high. So it's a big upfront cost when you haven't actually built an audience to sell the products to. Mm -hmm. So you'll be sat on a lot of stock that you've had to pay for and you haven't sold it yet. So that startup loan was very helpful for us with that. What it also gave us through Virgin was an awful lot of opportunity for mentorship. 
Um, and we, set, we try to say yes to as many opportunities to learn as we possibly can. So that was really helpful when we then came to do our crowdfunding round. I think with crowdfunding, it can seem like such an easy route. And I think there's a, there's a reason that a lot of people's um, campaigns fail is that they think, okay, well, you know, I've, I've filmed a really good video or I've, and I've made a really good investment pitch document and, and my, my landing page is strong. But then they might be seeking, let's say, £500,000 and they launch it on day one with no money. And it's difficult being on the other side of that as an investor to think, okay, well, what are the risks here? Whereas for us, uh, through lots of advice, we learnt that actually what you need is, it's all about uh, psychology, I suppose. And so we actually sourced uh, private investment of 30% before day one of going live with our crowdfund. So we were looking for X amount of money, but when we launched it on day one, a, a portion of that had already been secured. And then we closed our crowdfunding round within three days. So the momentum was oh. extremely high from day one, but that was because we spent nearly six months in preparation. <laughs> um, it's not just about how pretty your page is or, or how you know, refined your elevator pitches. It's also a lot about psychology and um, you just have to think about if it was your own money. If you went onto someone's page and they've got zero of 500,000 pounds raised and you're going to be the first person, whether it's 10 pounds or, or 10,000 pounds that you're going to put behind that brand, it's a lot easier to commit to that if they've already got 50,000 pounds on that page. Yeah. So that was something that, that we did and I think that really paid off for us. Um, in terms of just putting the work in beforehand in order to set yourself up for success. Amazing. And you appeared on Dragon's Den. Tell me about yes. that. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Love this yeah, show. so we, we, um, we were contacted by Dragon's Den. And as I mentioned, oh. you know, we, we tried to say yes to everything. Yeah. So there we <laughs> go. You, yeah. you reply to an email saying, yeah, sure, we'll go on Dragon's Den. And then a month later, you're about to go into the studios and you're thinking, oh my goodness, what are we doing? Yeah. Um, but it was a fantastic experience. Like I, I definitely don't regret it. It was something that was completely different. Like we'd never, you know, we're, we're obviously a sibling founded brand. And I think we've just never faced that level of criticism before. And it's a fantastic opportunity to have your business fairly and objectively critiqued. And it just makes you um, feel a lot more justification in what you're doing right. And then also if you're making any changes, there's a lot more security in uh, thinking that the changes that you're making are correct. So as context, at the time that we went on, we were actually about six months into a rebrand but we weren't able to talk about the rebrand because we could only pitch what was currently available which was our old brand okay. so um everything that the dragons criticized we were fixing through the rebrand so it was a really <laughs> although parts of it were like hard to stomach it was uh actually very very reassuring and you know, we're siblings, we can show our products to our mom or, or our sister or, or, you know, close friends and say, what do you think of that? They're not, they're not, gonna, it's going to be quite tough for them to say, I absolutely hate it. Yeah. But, but the dragons absolutely will. <laughs> so I think it was, uh, it actually did, you know, it went really well for us. We did get three offers of investment and, um, and, you know, it, it wasn't, we weren't just 
pulled to pieces um but there were negatives in there and and actually we we still drew a lot of positives from that because all of those negatives were things that we were addressing through our rebrand so it was a really really valuable experience for us well amazing yeah to have that kind of confirmation of okay we are moving in the correct the correct direction Mm -hmm. i thought it would have been you would have to ask to be on the show you know as a small business interesting that they reach out to people i guess to give them the opportunity yeah, they, they actually reach out a lot. Brilliant. We get people um, contacting us all the time saying, oh, we saw that you're on Dragon's Den. They've contacted us. Um, you know, what's your advice? What's it really like? And hilariously, oh, we've right. also been contacted by them quite a few times since, not realising that we're the same brand. Okay. <laughs> like, oh, we've actually already been <laughs> yeah. on. The new, the new branding has worked so well. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, we'll do it again if you want. But. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, brilliant. Um, I, I, I will say this at any stage of your business, in the very, very early days or five years in, 10 years in, whatever, um, going to consumer shows or to trade shows is such a valuable experience. And I think that as a founder or a business owner, you should never feel like you're above it or that you should just hand it over to sales staff because there is no better way to speak to hundreds and hundreds of people in a very short space of time and learn uh, the questions that they ask, the concerns that they have, the things that they love, the things that they're not so sure about. It's such a brilliant uh, kind of educational experience for you and, and helps you to, um, I guess, pivot the way that you might sell your products or, or new things that you might not have even considered being a selling point just by speaking to would-be customers or retailers at shows so we, we try to do as many of those as possible so they they help out a lot so the consumer shows is where you'd have the likes of like booths and all those different stockists come and kind of look for new brands to take on yes yeah, so i I, okay. I would consider that a, a trade show so that's where show. you're you're meeting okay. kind of business contacts um yeah. so for example there's a there's a show called cosmoprof which is one of the biggest ones that happens um, and that's that would be all kind of business audience who come to meet brands um, in in the hopes of potentially working with them, and they kind of choose from them. Consumer shows would be things more like the London Coffee Festival, or oh, okay. um, it might be a fitness festival or something that like that, where it's just kind of the public who buy tickets and come along, and uh, they're there to shop essentially. So um, some shows are, are both. Some shows might have one trade day followed by two consumer days. Um, there's there's a real mixture out there, and, and um, yeah. So so a trade show, for example, you might not be selling stock at the time but you hope to come away from it with lots of contacts whereas a consumer show you go in the hope of making sales and and getting new direct customers yeah so it's kind of where you're doing your networking and your relationship building from the ground up yes absolutely yeah and and also we we sometimes use them as a way to test out new products so we might run like a small batch we might just make a couple of hundred um of of a new product that we're thinking of launching and we'll pitch it at a proposed price point, for example, and we'll just see how it goes before we then commit to making 10,000. Because <laughs> the last thing you want to do is make a huge volume of something and then actually it doesn't go so well or, or there isn't the demand for it. Um, or we might take multiple cents of one product and it's just a very simple idea, like dropping a paperclip into uh, a little 
dish in front of each one to say which one's your favorite. That's such good market research and it's essentially free. Um, so that's something that we've also done and that's worked out really well for us too. Amazing. That's like very invaluable. So it's all about testing the product before even taking it further with your, with your customers. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, you're, you're making the product for them to be bought. And so you need to gather as much information as you can from your prospective buyers, I suppose. So what has been your biggest challenge um, throughout this whole experience? I think for us, um, one thing that we've we've gone through is that we are we're a bit different in that we are tackling issues of waste in the beauty industry and the beauty industry is arguably quite shallow and quite fickle and we obviously had a investment in, in the start and when you get that you um i guess you you have to take a lot of advice and you have to take on board people's opinions who have a lot more experience than you. And I think for us, what we did wrong, I suppose, was that we almost took too much advice and that allowed our message and what made us special and different to be watered down through, um, I guess, just apprehension and, and fears and, and being worried about getting it wrong. When I think what we've now learned is that being different might be something that some people say absolutely no to, but it's also something that gets you your passionate audience. So mm. rather than trying to please everyone at once and therefore perhaps, um, you know, not having this tribe who are passionate behind you and wanting to support you, you, you might, you might have, you know, people who hate your brand, but I'd rather have love and hate than just a kind of middle of the ground like, <laughs> yeah. so um, we, that's why we kind of had to rebrand in the end. Uh, was to put our mission back to the front and center of our messaging and, and really uh, learn how to be proud of it again, rather than slightly hiding behind what we were doing, which, you know, was what made us stand out and what made us different. And we were put off from that by listening to too many people in the beginning who said, oh, no, it's too soon. Oh, the beauty industry won't react well to it. Oh, people are going to turn their nose up to this idea or you know, yeah, it might be cool, but I don't, I don't think you should shout about it. Just keep it in the background. And actually it took us two years to realize that we should shout about it. And if some people don't like it, that's okay. Uh, because those people that do like it will absolutely love it. And that's, that's what we've, we've come to realize. Yeah. It's like the value of a loyal customer base, you know, it's so much mm -hmm. more valuable than having just a huge amount of like one-time buyers. And what has been your biggest success? Ooh, I think for me, um, one of the biggest things that I came away with just feeling like I'd absolutely smashed it was uh, I did a public pitch in front of an audience of about ooh, 150, 200 people. There was basically an opportunity to pitch your brand uh, for two minutes to a panel of Sainsbury's buyers at a public event. And lots of brands put their you know, business ideas forward and, and then five were selected to pitch live to this panel and I was selected and I went up and I gave my pitch and it was obviously terrifying <laughs> and oh, I was someone yeah. in the past who had really struggled with public speaking and then over time I guess going through experiences like that or like Dragon's Den you you slowly 
I guess I never get over it. It's always nerve wracking, but it gets yeah. better. It's like one um, of the top fears, isn't it? Public speaking. A hundred percent. Yeah. I was absolutely, absolutely crippled by it when I was yeah. younger. And, and I think also, you know, when you, when you're talking about something that you love and that you're passionate about, that's the other thing that makes it much easier. But I, yeah. I did this pitch and I won, I won the listing. So that for me personally, um, I, I could never have imagined that I would do something like that Incredible. and I would walk yeah. away successful. And so that's, that's still something that I'm, I'm very proud of and I, and I count as a, as a big win. Yeah, incredible. What advice would you give to our listeners in terms of career or perhaps starting their own company? One bit of advice that I often give is to not listen to everyone's advice. I think mm-hmm. that you have to have the confidence in yourself um, to, to say thank you and to be always open to listening, uh, but also have the strength of conviction to say, actually, you know, I, I live and breathe this business idea and I, I, you know, I have to have the confidence to go all in with it if it's going to succeed. Uh, and I think be prepared to work incredibly hard. I think you need a lot of grit and determination to, to go down a kind of startup route. And then in terms of just general, general careers that aren't necessarily about starting your own business, I think I would just say to know, to know what you're good at and to know your worth with regards to that and to uh, not worry or not sweat the stuff that you're not so good at because no one is good at everything. And um, I think it's, it's something that I've learned again. So like public speaking is a perfect example. You can freak yourself out about being asked a question that you might not know the answer to, but everyone's human. And if you just say, do you know what? I don't know. Um, Let me look that up and I'll come back to you. No one is going to judge you for that. No one is going to think, oh my God, she didn't know or or feel cringed at the fact that you're trying to make it up or that you're clearly struggling. I think the best approach as a human (laughs) in in Mm -hmm. a career or as a business owner, or no matter who you are, what age you are, what gender you are, is if you don't know, just that's absolutely fine because we don't know everything and that's you know just be transparent and be honest and don't be afraid um you know you we all bring something different and once you figure out what you're great at focus on that uh, and and develop it but don't be worried don't don't stress out or, or give too much thought in your life to the things that you you're not so good at let them be and and hire someone (laughs) to do it for you delegate (laughs) exactly yeah delegate (laughs) yeah incredible I kind of think a lot of people get and including myself but um, a lot of people get really into their own heads and they really start to care what other people think so it actually Mm -hmm. almost paralyzes them to take any action or pursue things that they they think people will be like why are you why are you after that dream it's kind of nothing to do with you so yeah exactly and I I think when people ask me what my background is I I'm I don't shy away from being like well yeah I don't have a formal cosmetology background Mm. and I don't need one like I work with professional formulators that's that's not what I bring um I I'm I'm happy to say that I I come from you know a, a retail management background and I did history of art like okay maybe that's that doesn't give me in your mind the perfect credentials to own a skincare brand, but I, I work with a fantastic team and between us, we have everything we need and, and that's all that matters. Okay. So my final question is the, um, some recommendations. I love recommendations. Mm. I love asking people, what is your favorite book or a book that changed your life, your favorite beauty product and your favorite restaurant in London? Oh, okay. Right. So I'll start with book. 
Um, I'll make a couple of recommendations that were relevant to me in mm -hmm. the early stages of uh, launching UpCircle. And um, I guess I looked to other successful entrepreneurs and I read both Alan Sugar's book, uh, What You See Is What You Get, and oh, yeah. uh, Richard Branson's book, which is Losing My Virginity. And I guess, you know, you see these characters, you might have watched The Apprentice, or obviously everyone's aware of Virgin as a brand, and you see the huge success that they have, but I think it can be quite valuable going back to the roots of them as people and uh, how they started out. So those were really important um, books that I... I took a lot away from and particularly I think it was Richard Branson he speaks about building a brand that has a purpose beyond profit and that was very important for us you know this yeah. wasn't always just about money we wanted something that left us feeling fulfilled so I took that away from reading his book so I recommend those um, another book recommendation perhaps for a slightly younger audience but I think it's relevant in the time that we're in right now is called The Hate You Give, which is by Angie Thomas. Mm -hmm. um, it's about a 16 year old who witnesses the murder of her best friend by a police officer and struggles with how to speak about it. Yeah. And uh, in recent times, obviously with all of the stuff that's happening in the wake of uh, George Floyd's death, I think as a brand, we've learned uh, now that we've built a platform and we have kind of a, a position of responsibility to speak out um, when, things are going on in the world and to not be afraid to be a bit political sometimes. And that's a fantastic book that's relevant to the times that we're in. So I'll recommend that one as well. Moving on to a product. Oh, so a product that I'm absolutely loving at the moment um, from our own range. Yeah, of course. Uh, it's just like a daily essential and it's our face moisturizer. I uh, just use a, 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 one of our soap bars in the shower for both face and body. And then I follow up with our, 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 our face moisturizer which is made with the powder of discarded argan shells um, it's a lightweight super hydrating cream it comes in a glass jar with an aluminium lid so nice sustainable packaging as well and it just keeps my skin looking fresh well rested and hydrated throughout the day it's so simple um, it's just one product on my face and it, and it I you know it looks and feels as good as, at the end of the day as it does at the start of the day so for anyone who's not all about a massive fancy skincare routine just mm -hmm. want something simple and effective that is a brilliant go-to so is that and suitable for all skin types it is yes yeah it's quite a lightweight moisturizer so it doesn't okay, leave perfect. you with a kind of uh, a greasy sheen you can wear it underneath makeup and it won't cause any slippage but it's still packed with hydrating ingredients um, and you're just using that with a cleanser Yes, yeah. So it cleanse in the shower and then I follow up with the moisturizer and, yeah. and that is pretty much my routine. Oh, if fab, the weather's yeah. a bit more miserable or I need a little bit of an extra boost, I use our serum as well and, uh, after the moisturizer. What's the serum? Um, I'm, I love skincare, so hit me up. So the serum <laughs> is made with uh, the oil that we extract from the coffee grounds that we collect. So okay. it's, um, it's, yeah, it's essentially an oil. It's uh, certified organic, 100% natural. It's blended with things like rosehip and yoyoba and sea buckthorn. Yeah. So again, it's got it's just an absolute powerhouse. It's our bestseller as well. Um, Brilliant. Rosehip is so is mm. so good for you, isn't it, for your skin? And it's at a really attractive price point as well. It's only 15 pounds, and you use a couple of drops each time, so it lasts forever. So um, it's it's a fantastic kind of booster of hydration as well if you wanted something additional. So that's more of a serum rather than an oil? Yes. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, okay, brilliant. So restaurant in London? I would recommend 
nopi is a fantastic Australian restaurant. I love restaurant. nopi, yeah. Yeah, brilliant vegetable dishes. Uh, absolutely love it there. I also love uh, Wild Food Cafe. So they do yeah, uh, like raw vegan food. But even if you're not vegan, this is a, uh, it's so tasty. And then another one for special occasions, a, a little bit pricier. Um, took my sister-in-law there when she got engaged to my brother uh, is the river cafe it's amazing and it's seasonal the highest quality ingredients and it's perfect for special occasions so that would be another record. oh brilliant i haven't tried it yet but um definitely will thank you so much that was incredibly insightful and helpful and yeah thank you thank you for having me it's been my absolute pleasure it's been great to talk to you <laughs> <laughs>